All right, let's begin. Let's start off with this, a photo of Christian Bale. There he is. That's it. No, uh, he's just won the 2019 Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Motion Picture Comedy or Musical for his portrayal of former Vice President Dick Cheney. And during his acceptance speech, uh, Bale infamously thanked the devil, saying, uh, thank you to Satan for giving me inspiration on how to play this role. But, you know, in the Christian Bale voice. So it was like, it was Satan what helped me do it, you know, like that. And then there were a few chuckles, and the night went on, and about 10 minutes after that particular award was televised, who should comment but none other than the official Twitter account for the Church of Satan? And they said this, to us, Satan is a symbol of pride, liberty, and individualism, and it serves as an external metaphorical projection of our highest personal potential. That's wordy. As Mr. Bale's own talent and skill won him the award, this is fitting. Hail Christian. Hail Satan. (laughs) And then, then it went on. It gets funnier. Understandably offended, Liz Cheney threw her hat into the Twitter ring. And she cited a 2008 incident in which Christian Bale was arrested but not charged with a crime, saying, Satan probably inspired him to do this too. And then... In a turn of events never before seen in the history of social media, some amount of arguing ensued. And here's the thing about all of it. Uh, I haven't spoken with Mr. Bale directly yet, but I'm I'm not convinced that he intended a sincere celebration of Satan or of satanic philosophy. I think he probably just meant to be funny. I don't know. I also don't think that the Church of Satan ever really believed that Baal was sincerely thanking the devil. They likely just saw an opportunity for press, and they seized it, and it worked. You know, when your name is the Church of Satan, it's like people in your demographic are already signed up. You've got to get the word out there, man. You've got to get new recruits. It's a struggle, I'm sure. And then, in this hilariously bizarre pop culture exchange, I noticed a kind of interestingly enduring reality which is that people disagree on what it means to be in league with the devil. In fact, each of the three parties cited seemed to mean wildly different things in alleging Baal's connection with Satan. For one of them, it was probably a joke. For the other, it was a compliment. And finally, it was defamation of character, the idea being that if we can truly connect this man to Satan, we will discredit him. And to behold the ensuing scuffle and all the press, you realize, man, even loose talk has the power to divide, to stir up real animosity, to make friends, to make enemies, to celebrate someone, or to bring them down. So with that, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Before we read, it's actually been quite a spell since you guys were in Matthew. I don't know if you realize. In fact, I checked. It was September of last year. So if you're new, you missed a bit. You might want to catch up. Um, If you've just wandered in, here's a bit about where you left off. In the Gospel of Matthew, you have this really interesting narrative arc. There's this charismatic and polarizing teacher called Jesus, and he teaches as if he has authority in and of himself, rather than appealing to an outside authority to validate his message. And this is kind of a new thing. But then, this same audacious teacher goes around ancient Israel doing the kinds of things one would be able to do if they did indeed have authority in and of themselves. So he performs miracles, he heals the sick, he reverses paralysis, he resuscitates dead people, he opens the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind, he even pronounces the forgiveness of sins. 
And all of this starts to stir up trouble. You can't go around teaching a provocative message to thousands, bringing dead people back to life and so on, without generating a certain amount of buzz. And though Jesus does kind of attempt to curb the hype, he specifically asks those who witness or benefit from his miracles not to tell people about them. There's only so much one can do to contain that kind of thing. So uh, my community at my church at Van City has nine small children and one of them in utero. So ten altogether. Ten small children. One of them is currently doesn't do much except, you know, grows. Um, and this means that when that child is out there in the world, we will have as many kids as we have adults in our community. It's just awful. It's the worst community ever. Does anyone have a community with that many or close to that many small children in it? No, right? We should hang it up. That's what I say. It's just awful. And uh, (laughs) because of this outrageous uh, amount of children, our philosophy for accomplishing simple things like conversation or prayer or sanity is just do the best you can, you know. I think if any more children than 10 children, just call it good. We're probably spiritually formed. Let's not have a community anymore. It starts to feel like, you know, uh, trying to play chess outside in a hurricane or something like that. (laughs) And occasionally we'll provide some kind of like fun treat for the kids. You know, if it's uh, ice cream for dessert or in the summer, like a sprinkler outside, something like that, popcorn in a movie. But you have to keep that stuff under wraps until you're good and ready to deliver. Or all impatient hell breaks loose and the whole night revolves around the anticipation for this thing. So every now and then, like, one person or another has filled one kid in ahead of time, probably, like, as a bargaining chip. Just please, for the love of God, keep it together. There's going to be a sprinkler. You like a sprinkler? You know, all that kind of stuff. And within minutes, there's riots. Say that we heard there's a sprinkler. Give us a sprinkler. They're like, oh, why are we doing this? Oh, right. Jeez, yeah, yeah. So... All that to say, word spreads, you know, and an, an incendiary word spreads like fire. You can't go around claiming to be a long-awaited king without exciting the people who want the new king and upsetting whoever is currently king. You can't go around claiming to offer the one true way to God without upsetting the people who consider themselves experts on exactly that thing. So Matthew, as the writer, the author of this biography, has begun to gather ominous clouds over what what was once exciting scenes of teaching and caring for other people. And now the reader has begun to realize, oh, wait, man, something bad is going to happen to Jesus. And the last few stories have been about Jesus deliberately generating controversy, and then he kind of wields it like a teaching tool. So earlier in chapter 12, it was about this argument over the semantics of keeping the Sabbath and how to do that correctly. And now Jesus is going to address accusations lobbied at him regarding his power to cast out demons. So let's read Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 22. You guys all right? Great, thank you. Matthew 12, 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now pause for a minute. Notice 
the text presupposes that there is a correlation between demonic oppression and physical malady. We've actually seen this again and again throughout Matthew's gospel. We've done an entire series on it. Go back and listen to the podcast if you missed out. Jesus understands there's a connectedness between the physical and spiritual realms in regards to sickness, deafness, blindness, paralysis, even death. And don't uh, misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the New Testament teaches that if you're sick or if you can't see, it's because a demon struck you personally. But what I am saying is that the worldview of Jesus in the Bible is that spiritual warfare, the spiritual realm, is a very real thing. Over and against the modern era that we breathe, the worldview of the Scriptures takes the spiritual realm just as seriously as the physical realm. And both in the Bible are populated with real, autonomous, personal beings— with the power and ability to affect reality. So sometimes they make people sick or blind. But even if a spiritual being doesn't afflict a person directly, sickness and suffering are, in the Bible, evil. They are the outcome of a broken and fallen world that has been wrecked by an entity called the devil. In God's original design and intent, in his future plan for the cosmos, people will not get sick or suffer from blindness. So in this sense, all sickness and physical malady are either directly or indirectly demonic. And Matthew just assumes this when he seamlessly correlates this man's blindness, his inability to speak, with the work of an evil spirit. And notice in the story, the healing Jesus performs is synonymous with casting out the evil spirit. Jesus engages in spiritual warfare, and the man is both freed from the demon and cured of his ailments. And the people react with astonishment, and they start wondering aloud to one another, hey, could this be the guy that we've been waiting for all this time? Who else would be able to do this kind of thing? Could he be the son of David? Son of David was a royal title rooted in an Old Testament prophecy uh, from 2 Samuel 7, in which God says to a dude called Nathan, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this promise from Yahweh had become for the Jewish people a reference to the Messiah, a coming king who would restore Israel usher in a kingdom that would never end. So the people who hear and see what Jesus is saying and doing are filled with a cautious hope. Hey, could this possibly be the guy? Look down at Matthew 12, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So, The Pharisees, who are a sect of religious leaders, they hear these excited, hopeful murmurings in the crowd, and they immediately speak up to squelch them out. No, this isn't the guy. The only reason he can do magic tricks is because he's empowered by evil spirits himself, which is a very serious accusation, you know. And interestingly, this accusation lingered after the time of Jesus. We have ancient rabbinic writings that mention Jesus by name, claiming that he, and I quote, performed sorcery, incited Jews to engage in idolatry, and led Israel astray. And the effort was then to discredit Jesus 
and thus stomp out the flicker of hope in his identity as the Messiah of Israel. This guy is not the son of David. Don't get excited. He's in league with the demon. And interestingly, they actually name the demon. They call it Beelzebul. A lot of research has been conducted uh, on the name Beelzebul and its variations, Beelzebub being the more famous version. We don't know exactly where the name comes from or what it means. There's some ideas and opinions. But this name shows up in the Old Testament as a name for a pagan god. It shows up many times in rabbinic writings from the 3rd century or so. Around the time of Jesus, it had become a a kind of shorthand used to describe a high-ranking or noteworthy evil spirit, which is why the Pharisees called Beelzebul the prince of demons. In the 17th century encyclopedia of demons, French painter Louis Le Breton depicted Beelzebub as an insect because his name is sometimes thought to translate as Lord of the Flies. Uh, Here's that illustration. I like how there's uh, skulls and crossbones in its wings. It's like, if it weren't obvious enough that this thing looks menacing, it's, you know, also poisonous or something like that. Lord of the Flies, uh, of course, is also the title of William Golding's fantastic 1954 novel in which the demon itself is a minor character, not to mention the two film adaptations. But here in our text, it's likely just a name that specifies a kind of chief demon, which is more commonly called the Satan, the devil, sometimes other names like Belial, Mastema, Azazel. The point is, the charge from the Pharisees is essentially akin to them saying the devil is helping him do it. And notice, no one is accusing Jesus of being a fraud. There's no dispute as to whether or not he's actually performing miracles, which is why he's accused of sorcery even after his lifetime. Why attempt to out him as a fraud when there were so many people around who would just say, no, we we saw it. (laughs) It was real. I was right there. The guy couldn't see, and then he could see again. So it seems evident that the authenticity of his work speaks for itself. So the more practical recourse for the Pharisees is to attack the credibility of the source from which Jesus draws his obvious power. Clearly, he has power, but how? They can't say it's from God, so that leaves them with only a few other options. If he gets it from the devil, well, then he's not the Messiah. He's not the son of David. Everyone can move on with their lives. Yes, he's doing something impressive, but he's not who he says he is. And it amazes me that this type of identity redirection still happens all the time. Only now, it more often sounds like this. Yes, Jesus had amazing stuff to say, but he was just a teacher. Or, yeah, he did some cool things. He stood for some cool things. But, ultimately, he's not who he says he is. And both statements are accusations of the highest severity because they are designed to drain faith from the truth of who Jesus is. And as archaic, as fire and brimstone as it sounds, whenever I hear philanthropists and celebrities and former, you know, uh, deconstructed Christians or whatever argue, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher, he was a moralist, he was a philosopher, but nothing more. I hear this same story. It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. In other words, he is not who he says he is. So, how will Jesus respond to this attack? Look down at verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Which I think is really funny, because Jesus often has like really cryptic, weird, metaphorical lot. Here he's just using common sense, logic as a defense. It's like, if a demon's purpose is to do evil, what sense does it make for a demon to drive evil out? 
And a small caveat here, there is some precedence in both the Bible and in history of the church for demons performing good miracles but with malicious intent. But historically, there's always been a fairly simple rubric with which to resolve the possible conflict, and that's just this. Is the miraculous healing or thing conducted in such a way as to draw attention to or away from Jesus and who Jesus truly is? Jesus goes on in verse 27. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. Exorcisms uh, in the ancient Near East weren't exactly an unheard of phenomenon. That Jesus performs exorcism isn't itself noteworthy, but the way Jesus performs them, usually with a single word rather than like a lengthy verbose procedure, is very different. So Jesus, knowing the Pharisees and the religious leaders are no strangers to exorcisms, He redirects the charge as a question back at them. How do you guys drive out demons? Where does your power come from? Because either way, you're going to have to answer for it. And then he goes on, verse 28. But if it it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So here he's telling the Pharisees, look, you guys are missing it. If I am who I say I am, then the kingdom of God is right here, right now. And he goes on, verse 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Now, hang with me for a minute, because this strange metaphor, often lost on a great many readers, is actually one of the coolest quotations of Jesus of Nazareth. In context, this rebuttal follows from the previous logic-based arguments. A kingdom or household divided against itself is going to fall apart. It doesn't work. Now Jesus is saying, no one can rob a strong man unless he dispatches the strong man first. And remember, all of this is in a story about driving out demons. Now, the New Testament features a very clear, very prevalent motif about Jesus' battle against Satan and the powers of darkness. Of the devil's power and authority, First John says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And these are just a few examples. We can go on for quite a bit. We won't for the sake of time. The point is that Jesus understood his message as a a mission of cosmic warfare. Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples, describes the healing work of Jesus this way. You know what has happened throughout the province or province of Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. This is my personal favorite for 1 John. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared. The reason was to destroy the devil's work. Now, obviously, these followers of Jesus didn't invent this understanding of Jesus' battle with the devil. They learned it from Jesus himself. Jesus himself understood that in the words of John, the reason he appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Thus, in the metaphor, the strong man is the powerful and authoritative God of this age. The Satan, the devil. And Jesus himself is the disruptor. 
He's the rebel. He has infiltrated the devil's dominion and he plans to take everything from him. And remember, this is after an exorcism. So what Jesus is stealing from the devil is us. He's taking us back from Satan. And this actually recalls imagery from the prophetic writing of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Look at this. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what Yahweh says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children. I will save. How awesome is that? But in order to do that, he has to deal with the devil himself. He has to tie up the strong man. So to me, this is kind of like spiritual warfare trash talk. Jesus is saying, yeah, the devil's really strong. So what? I'll tie him up and I'll take all his stuff. All the people that he's taken, I'll just steal them right back from under his nose. Let's read on. Verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Holy cow, talk talk about being direct. Whoever is not with me is against me. Sit with that for a second. And consider the seriousness of this statement. One scholar I read this week wrote quite simply, neutrality to Jesus is hostility toward him. Wow. That line, whoever does not gather with me scatters, is a reference to what we sometimes call evangelism or more simply inviting other people to know and follow Jesus. Meaning that same intense juxtaposition for or against is now applied to the mission of God's people. If you're not gathering them, you are scattering them. Wow. And things are about to get even more intense. Keep reading. Verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So there's nothing noteworthy there. Let's just move on. I'm just kidding. That was one of the jokes that I told you guys about. You did good. It's going to make it. I'm going to keep it in there. So so what's all the uh, unforgivable sin stuff? Well, Notice this first. Jesus begins this super controversial statement by actually saying something quite beautiful. He says, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Meaning Jesus begins with the wideness of God's mercy. He begins with God's incredible patience and his willingness to work with people in their brokenness. But then he adds this really sobering warning saying that blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Which begs the question, well, what does that mean exactly? One scholar I read this week put it thusly. The identification of the blasphemy against the Spirit has vexed many. The correct pastoral approach has always been, if you are worried that you have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, you have not. For the spirit of this sin is an unhurried adamancy. It is impenitence, the unwillingness to repent. That is at the root of the unforgivable sin. It is not careless acts. It is a hardened state. In this sense, to blaspheme the spirit is to solidify oneself in obstinate rejection of Jesus. N.T. Wright also says it really well. He writes, Jesus is warning against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring, that must be the devil's doing. If you do that, it's not just that you won't be forgiven. You can't be because you would have just cut off the very channel along which forgiveness would come. Once you declare 
that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. In uh, 2017, I believe it was, Donald Trump was celebrating his rapport with American evangelicals, and he was asked if he had ever asked God for forgiveness, and he controversially answered, and I quote, no, I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And political divisiveness aside, I remember thinking that it was actually a, a chilling moment to think like, oh man, the commitment to such a thing, and what a scary thing to stay there. Earlier this week, I was listening to an album of kind of conceptual operatic thing with this fictional narrative. And in the album's closing song, the narrator sings, I've got an angel in the lobby waiting to put me in line. I won't ask forgiveness. My faith has run dry. And I thought that kind of firm and final steadiness that looks into the eyes of God, who sends the Spirit as a helper to all who would be apprentices of Jesus and says, no, never. I will not. And they keep saying it all the way to the grave. That is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And notice this isn't the type of thing that just happens uh, in a moment of foolishness or recklessness. It is, as Bruner said, a hardened state. That is why Jesus doesn't even accuse the Pharisees of committing the unforgivable sin. He simply explains the stakes as a gracious warning, even for them. If you continue down this road, if you become frozen in your unwillingness to receive this gift of truth, there will eventually be no turning back. And in this sense, this warning certainly sounds like it's among the more intense. But in essence, it's not terribly different from all of Jesus' many warnings about judgment. In other words, to reject Jesus is a decision with dire consequences. So let's keep reading. Verse 33. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. So here, Matthew is hearkening back to Jesus' core teachings compiled in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, he uses the exact same metaphor about trees and fruit. The idea being that authentic goodness is evidenced by a life of outward action, not just an inward disposition. That to say, you will recognize the disciple of Jesus by examining them for a life that reveals a love for God and a love for other people. On the other hand, when a life indicates an absence of of love for God and for other people. It is like a tree that bears no fruit or bears rotten fruit, and such a person is not a disciple of Jesus. And now Jesus is about to get even more intense. Look down at verse 34. Here comes the name calling. You brood of vipers, he says. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man or woman brings good things out of the good stored up in them. And an evil man or woman brings evil things out of the evil stored up in them. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Yikes. Now, remember, uh, in context, this has to do with the Pharisees deliberately disparaging the burgeoning faith of would-be disciples. So Jesus performs a miracle. He drives out a demon. He heals deafness. Spark of hope flickers amongst the bystanders. Hey, could this be the guy? This is exciting. Along come the Pharisees to stamp it out, deny Jesus' true identity with the most serious of insults. No, it's the devil. He's the one helping him do that. And so Jesus gets pretty stern. He tells them, hey, listen— You don't know how serious the things you say really are. 
to keep going on like this. You could be solidified in your callous disbelief and never be forgiven, and you will be held responsible for the things that you say, which, of course, remains more than a little sobering some 2,000 years later. All right, take a deep breath. We're almost done. Where does all of that leave us? It's a lot of text. Thank you for hanging in there. What do we do with this now? Like so many of Jesus' more stark teachings, there's a twofold dynamic here, I think, of both warning and of hope. And really, that's the way this idea of judgment works, at least as far as the scriptures are concerned. For us, judgment is this big, loaded, often unseemly word. But in the Bible, judgment is about finally making right all that is wrong in the world. The majority of all human beings would agree that all is not right. In the world. Most of us, when we see the poor and the starving, mental illness and child abuse, racism, sexism, slavery, oppression, police brutality, political corruption, we look and say, This is not right. So the biblical promise that Jesus will put an end to those things is hope. Yes, evil runs amok at the moment, but it is being pushed back by the kingdom of God, and one day it will be brought to an end entirely. That's good news. And the news gets better because throughout the entire story of the Bible, it is abundantly clear that God's passionate, deep-seated desire is to eliminate evil, yes, but also to rescue those victimized by evil and to also, also rescue those who do evil, meaning God wants to end child abuse, to rescue and redeem the abused, but he also wants to rescue and redeem the abusers. His compassion is nearly incomprehensible. But this, this God is uninterested in coercing the people he wants to rescue. He intervenes, he acts, he influences, he involves himself, he gets his hands dirty, but he will not force them. He will not pull all the strings. So inevitably, some who do evil would rather not be rescued, let alone redeemed. And yet, God is still coming to eradicate evil. And this turns potentially good news into very sobering, very scary news for those who stare into the beautiful compassion of Jesus and knowingly say again and again and again, I will not have it. But as for you and me, aren't we sometimes one or the other, the person who accepts or rejects Jesus, sometimes both in one day or even in a single moment? And because of this, Jesus never requires our idea of perfection, not by a long shot. Having become a human himself, Jesus understands the complicated tangle of our humanity, the human condition, and yet he is acutely, even painfully aware of the inherent danger in settling into our shadow side, so to speak. Tiptoeing toward the darkness is often evidenced by the things that we say. Scholar R.T. France says this, The thought is, again, of bringing to light what is in the secret place so that a person's words or deeds reveal what is really important to them and so their true character. Now, I doubt that many or any of us are strutting about accusing Jesus of doing miracles via the power of demons. If you are, stop that. Don't do that anymore. (laughs) That wasn't one of the jokes. I just thought that was funny now. Um, 
Don't do that. So most of us, honestly, in the story are more like the bystanders. We're like the people who are surrounded by an ongoing shouting match, a world that looks upon Jesus and says, he's not who he says he is. He's a liar. And we're like, well, I don't know. Is he or is he not? And many of those shouters, the naysayers, are not the ones that we, you know, kind of stereotype, not the science professors and the hostile humanists and the axe-grinding atheists. I mean, we know what they're doing. We know what they're about. But more often than not, those who come to deceive and discredit Jesus and lead attention away from him are, are the spiritualists, the enlightened post-evangelicals, those free-thinking heroes who wised up and left the church, and now they blog about it. And they made a podcast, and they created their own little fluid hybrid faith. They got rid of all the stuff they didn't like. They kept the stuff that, you know, makes them feel pretty nice. And with a smile and a tweet and a podcast or whatever, they say the same old thing. Yeah, Jesus is so amazing. He did some really cool stuff. But God? No. King of the universe? No. And I imagine Jesus, compassionate, pleading, but with warning in his voice, be careful. Do not settle into this shadow. When I was studying this text and writing this teaching, I went back and forth for days because it presents to us many questions we've been asking in different ways throughout this series, if you can remember far, that far back, but really throughout the practices, throughout our apprenticeship, to, throughout the last series on spiritual warfare and even Sabbath, all that stuff. Namely, things like, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he trustworthy? And it offers a hope that we've examined from several angles, several angles as well, that Jesus defeats evil, that he's victorious over the devil, all that stuff. So I looked, and I looked again until one phrase cut through the familiarity, and it is, perhaps fittingly, Jesus' final words in this text. Let me read them again. He said, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good Man or woman brings good things out of the good stored up in them. And an evil man or woman brings evil things out of the evil stored up in them. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Later, the New Testament writers will pick up on this warning and elaborate further, calling the tongue, or the way we talk, a restless, untamable evil. Look at this from James chapter 3. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed, have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Uh, I, like, I like words very much. For as long as I can remember, I've enjoyed words, the way they fit together on the page, in a sentence, in speech. And for as long as I can remember, I've understood the power of words to do good or to do evil. And Jesus says that both possibilities for good or evil in the way we talk are irrevocably tethered to what's inside us. There have been times in my life, more than I'd like to admit, in which I found myself willing and able, unfortunately, to lower a pail into a deep reservoir of selfish, petty woundedness, anger, even hatred, and to draw up from it words, words meant to injure or even destroy. 
I was thinking this week about um, something that happened in 2006 when beloved, then-beloved sitcom star Michael Richards, who played Cosmo Kramer on Seinfeld, he was performing stand-up comedy set in Hollywood um, when a group of noisy hecklers began to distract and upset him, and suddenly he became unhinged. He started shouting racial slurs and violent threats, and the crowd was stunned and disgusted. People were walking out. The incident was recorded and widely reported doing presumably uh, irreparable damage to Richard's career. And on that incident, he later, he later said something fascinating, which was this. Everyone that was there took the brunt of that anger and hate and rage. And I'm concerned about more anger and hate and rage. I'm not a racist, and yet it comes through. It fires out of me. A few years later, Richard seemed to summarize the incident well. He played himself on an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and in it he becomes outraged with another character, and in an obvious reference to the incident, he shouts, if only there were a horrible name that I could call you that would make you as angry as I am now. And I thought of the sign from Jesus, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Here's that same line from a few different translations. For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. Or, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So often I've been in arguments with my wife, Abby, or with a close friend, and I will find in myself the ability to articulate something dreadful, something cruel or dark or evil from the overflow of those things in my own heart. And we use these apologetic expressions to kind of whisk them away when the embers have cooled. We say things like, oh, I didn't mean it. I was just really upset. And there can be an element of truth in that, but it comes from somewhere. Maybe you're less of an arguing type, maybe more passive, less confrontational. But how do you talk about other people when they aren't around? Do you say things about them that you would never say in their presence with kindness and compassion? Or maybe you're not exactly a gossip, but do you use your words to do good, deliberately so? I remember a few months ago, I was having coffee with someone. He was telling me how frustrated he's become with uh, his group of friends and the way they talk. He said, everyone is always so sarcastic. Everything's always a joke. Nothing is sincere. You guys know what that's like? You have those kind of people in your life? If not, hey, good, <laughs> good job. Um, but the idea is that sometimes you create a certain air of insincerity so thick that you feel like you no longer know how to say anything sincere or kind or uplifting. And if you do, you need to immediately bury it under a joke or something sarcastic or foolish. Tonight, um, I invite you guys to draw your mind backward to a recent argument. Or think of the way that you talk about other people when they aren't around. Maybe under the guise of trying to be helpful or trying to get to the bottom of something. Or think of how often or how little you use the power of your words to lift other people up. And ask yourself, where, do, where does that come from? If what you find upsets you, does it represent a momentary lapse in judgment, a foolish slip of the tongue, or something deeper, something in your heart that seethed over, boiled? Because... For all of us, there's a tremendous seriousness, a profound weight to our words. And these words are so often indicative of what's inside. 
The culture of social media creates an illusion that one can drain responsibility from words. You just put them out there. You never interact with anyone. They just happen in cyberspace, and who cares who takes responsibility for them? So on Twitter, you know, it's all cynicism and shaming and virtue signaling, with dehumanizing words, accusatory words. On Facebook, it's, I don't know, like your grandma's political outrage or something like that. You know, condemning words, divisive words. Instagram is a nonstop barrage of endless phoniness, amazing trips, amazing families, amazing friends, amazing moments, empty, empty, empty words. And all of them matter. As our teacher and king, Jesus wants to transform us into the kind of people who do indeed speak from the overflow of the heart, but that overflow becomes kindness and compassion, and mercy, encouragement, restoration, humility, sincerity. Are those the kinds of words constantly on your lips, on my lips? So often we talk about kindness as if it's awkward. We shy away from it under the pretense of insecurity. I honestly can't tell you how often I've heard some, someone say amazing things about someone else that wasn't there at the time, and I'll say, man, that's really nice. You should tell them that. And they always say, that'd be weird, you know. They sweep it under the broom of insecurity. That'd be weird. I don't know how to say that. And then so often we show no inhibition to fire back at other people in disagreement. Outrage culture. Offense culture. I'm always offended to gossip, to disparage that challenging person in our families, our communities, our close circle of friends. To spend time every day relentlessly building out the greatness of fabricated moments for Instagram. So right now... Let's invite God's Spirit to search that wellspring of our hearts, to bring to mind the words from which they have overflown. All of this in an ongoing effort, the ongoing pursuit of our beloved Jesus, who pleads, even with his greatest opponents, please do not become hardened in your unwillingness to see the truth. May we seek out and deal with any part of us, hidden or in plain sight, that does not know that truth, so that Jesus can deal with it. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church give for more information. Thanks for listening.